0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Pineapples completely changed Hawaii. The fruit along with sugar became profitable commodities, but at the expense of the Native Hawaiians and their established government. A coup backed by U.S. Marines installed the head of a fruit company as president, then governor of the islands. That legacy continues today. We'll hear about agribusiness as an influence on colonization coming up this hour, right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The American Indian College Fund is releasing three briefs with findings from a three-part research project conducted in 2020 and 2021 on tribal colleges and universities. The focus of the research includes student support services, program development and review, and sustainability in tribal colleges and universities. TCUs are unique higher learning institutions located on or near Indian reservations. There were four major themes identified in the study around academic program development, the preferred term participants used when discussing post-secondary credentialing or quality assurance practices. TCUs use a four-step process similar to mainstream colleges when developing new academic programs, planning, internal review, external review, and program implementation. The American Indian College Fund has been the nation's largest charity supporting Native higher education for over 30 years. The college fund believes, quote, education is the answer and provided over $14 million in scholarships and other direct student support to American Indian students in 2021 and 2022. Since its founding in 1989, the college fund has provided more than $280 million in scholarships, programs, community and tribal college support. Montana ended its legislative session passing a bill guiding the removal and placement of Native American children in cases of adoption and foster care. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julen has more on changes made with and without support of tribal lawmakers.
2: The bill creates the Montana Indian Child Welfare Act, or MICWA. The policy builds on existing federal law regarding removal of Native American children and prioritizes placing them into the homes of family members or other tribal members. Over a dozen other states have passed statewide ICWA policies to increase guidelines for child placement, and they've all seen decreased rates of Native children in state custody as a result. Montana's rate of Native children in foster care is nearly four times higher than the rate of Caucasian children. Patrick Yawaki, a lobbyist for the Blackfeet Nation, said by expanding on the federal policy, Mikko would fill gaps in the system.
0: With Montana Equin Law, we can work to fix a broken system in the state and provide that the tribal children retain tribal identity and culture and heal intergenerational traumas
3: that exist when Native children are removed from their homes.
2: As Montana moves forward with the policy, a federal version is being challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court by those who say it gives preferential treatment based on race. The Montana bill contains a provision that will keep it in place regardless of the outcome of the federal case. Tribal lawmakers pushed back on an addition to the state bill that would sunset the policy in 2025. Supporters of the policy's limited run say it will give lawmakers a chance to revisit it next legislative session. But opponents say it will disrupt the lives of children and families in the system. The bill passed as amended out of both chambers. Montana's legislative session has now ended, and the bill awaits final approval by the governor. For National Native News, I'm Ellis Julin.
1: The senior paralegal and tribal criminal jurisdiction coordinator for the Yurok tribe in Northern California, Alana Nulf, spent years working on missing and murdered indigenous people cases in the region. Native News Online reports that after the tribe's own Emily Risling went missing in October of 2021, Nulf decided that she needed to take even more direct action in the face of what she felt was helplessness. NELF took it upon herself to earn a Part 107 Remote Pilot Certification from the Federal Aviation Administration in February this year. The license is required to operate drones for search and rescue missions. For the Iraq program, NELF has acquired two high-powered drones with a range of additional tools to help search and rescue efforts. The drones are also equipped with a payload delivery system that could deliver water, food, and other necessities to people awaiting rescue, and could provide light to first responders tending to a wounded person. The drone program will become part of the Yurok tribe's comprehensive response to one of the largest crises facing Indian country. According to a 2022 Congressional Research Service report, there were 9,560 cases involving missing and murdered Indigenous people in 2020 alone. I'm Jill Freitas.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation,
4: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org support by vision maker media envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding native stories in the public conversations they generate 45 plus years of native stories and indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org
0: native voice one the native american radio network This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Even though commercial production has diminished in recent decades, pineapples and sugar have strong associations with Hawaii and the Caribbean. The history of these industries are not as sweet as the crops themselves. Colonization and exploitation of indigenous people and environmental degradation are among the crops troubled legacies. Today on our show, we'll take a dive into the history of sugar and pineapple on islands like Hawaii and Cuba. But we also want to hear from you. Were you taught the full history of sugar and pineapples? Does any of the history of these crops resonate within your tribal community? The number to join our conversation is one 800 996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also comment on our social media pages. Search for Native America Calling on Facebook or Instagram. Speaking with us from Aquasasne, New York is Jose Barrero. He is Scholar Emeritus from the Smithsonian Institute and an author. He is taino. Taino. Jose, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, Sean. Good to be with you.
0: Also joining us from Hawai'i is Dr. Gary Oki'iro. He is a visiting professor of American Studies at Yale University and professor emeritus at Columbia University. Gary, great to have you on the show as well.
5: Hello, hello, all. It's a great honor to be with you, Sean.
0: Also joining us from Hawai'i is Dr. Sidney Iokea. She holds a PhD in political science with an emphasis in Hawaii politics. She is native Hawaiian. Sydney, welcome.
6: Aloha, Sean.
0: Thank you for having Aloha. me. Absolutely. Aloha to you as well, Sydney. And Gary, I'd like to begin with you today and please uh, help us frame today's conversation. How did pineapples become so intertwined with Hawaiian history?
5: It actually, pineapple is a native crop in South America. It was begun by the Indians, like um, those major crops that feed the world today potatoes, maize, beans. Um, pineapple was one of those crops developed by native peoples. The original crop, or pineapple, was a very small fruit with lots of seeds. And so the native people had to breed and cultivate and Um, make hybrids of that fruit into the large fruit with very small or no seeds at all that we're familiar with today. And what they did was they moved the pineapple from the Amazon headwaters down into the Atlantic up towards the Caribbean, where they encountered uh, Calinago, other peoples of Cuba and Puerto Rico, and then they exchanged the pineapple there and also all the way to Central America. In fact, the first European who the natives discovered, Columbus, was introduced to the pineapple by natives of Hispaniola, and he took it back to the king and queen of Spain, and that's how it became a kind of European commodity, a fruit of empire.
0: Well, it sounds like these early uh, indigenous pineapples, very different from what we acquire today at a contemporary supermarket. And and please give us a little bit more background. So when did this, uh, this move from the Amazon and into uh, the Pacific Islands, such as Hawaii, when did pineapples actually, when did people start moving them in those different regions?
5: Great, <clears throat> about 4,000 years ago, the native people encountered and developed the fruit. And about 2000 years ago, it was in the area of the Caribbean. So about when Columbus came mid 15th century, um, the fruit was already quite well developed. As I said, he took it back to the king and queen of Spain and it became a kind of royal symbol, but not just a royal symbol, it was a kind of, hmm, imperial plunder you know like the native peoples themselves the fruit was native plunder now what happened was that the indians around the um around uh, venezuela developed a fruit called cayenne pineapple which was the kind of shape that was ideal for the kind of marketing that we have today ideal for canning now eventually the fruit came to hawaii and it became an industrial kind of crop, just like sugar was.
0: And what was the, the in, what did they use pineapples for primarily? W- were they food? Were there other uses uh, for them as well?
5: Multiple uses. So as a fruit of empire, it was a fruit to be displayed on these lavish tables. Um, the Europeans themselves built hothouses and competed to grow the crop in Europe. um, One of the um, last governors of Virginia colony had a whole hothouse constructed with a giant pineapple at the top of it. Um, Now, what happened then as a fruit of empire, it came to Hawaii and it was cultivated by the peoples and by migrant workers here. And it was marketed by this guy, James Dole, who was a cousin of the first illegal governor of Hawaii, um, Sanford Dole. And what James Dole did for the fruit was to translate it into a fruit of can, that is a canned fruit. So he used canning, which was, by the way, developed in Imperial Troops expansion. Um, They used canning to market the pineapple on the continent. And that was how the fruit became not just a natural fruit, but one that was manufactured, that was processed. And his trick was to label it Hawaiian pineapple. And so Hawaii became a kind of um, location synonymous with pineapple.
0: Oh, this is all just really, really interesting, Gary. And uh, James Dole uh, canning the fruit, this fruit of empire. Um, Was there slave labor used in the cultivation of pineapple in Hawaii at this time?
5: What did you say, flavor?
0: Slave labor. Was slave labor oh, used at oh, all? Oh,
5: they're, they're <laughs> <sorry>. um, mainly, <laughs> yeah, no, they were. They were I guess it was flavorful
0: from, too, but yeah,
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for virtually nothing. By the way, that's why I was inspired to write the book Pineapple Culture because I worked in the fields, um, not Doll's Field, but Del Monte's Fields on the island of Molokai for two summers, and it was such heavy labor. I didn't know how people could actually survive this kind of labor. And I was at the prime of my, you know, I was a college kid working in the fields. But anyway, um, it was contract workers who did that labor.
0: Contract workers. Now, I understand you can visit a Dole fruit plantation in Hawaii now. Uh, Do you know what visitors, when they go to that plantation, what they learn about the crops role in Hawaii's history, like what you're sharing with us today?
5: <laughs> well, certainly not as a fruit of empire, or how James Dole stole, stole the land of Native peoples, uh, bought it for a pittance from his cousin, um, and these lands were reserved for white farmers in Wahiwa, where Dole Plantation is today. is like a tourist site, and a lot of tourist sites slight Native peoples, is like they go there for entertainment. There's a kind of maze, and then there's a kind of train, and mainly about drinking pineapple juice and eating pineapple uh, sorbet. Um, so they have just no idea that is given to them about the real history of pineapple in Hawaii.
0: Oh, geez. Yeah, so they get this really colorful, toned-down version. And, and how much... Uh... How actively are are pineapples grown in Hawaii now? Is it still a big industry?
5: Gone. The land is too profitable for real estate and so forth. It's gone. So it's gone to other parts of the third world, uh, like the Caribbean, Central America, Southeast Asia, Philippines, and East Africa. Mm
0: -hmm. Completely gone. And, and for people living uh, in Hawaii now, are there any people that just grow pineapple, you know, kind of small-scale operations, or everything's gone?
5: Well, it's not a, a commercial crop so much anymore. It's, um, it's uh, mainly family. Like, I have a field of pineapple. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, it's mainly um, imported.
0: Okay, in your field of pineapple, I mean, tell us more about it. Do you go out there and, and actively cultivate it or <laughs> harvest it?
5: <laughs> yeah, 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 I actively cultivate and harvest and replant and so forth. Um, yeah, and is it but as like much I work said, as okay, it was maybe. when
0: when you? Okay, go ahead. No,
5: not at all. Okay, <laughs> like the commercial okay. fields in the first in the old days, people had to, of course, hand plant them. That's backbreaking labor, and then cultivate it. And then when the fruit is ripe, they would harvest it with bags that they carried into the field and hauled out to the roads where the trucks would pick them up. Um, when I worked, there was like a mechanism, a boom that went over about like 11 rows of pineapples. They're planted in rows. Um, the workers are dressed to protect yourselves like chaps like a cowboy would boots to protect against centipedes and spiders Um, gloves uh, so the uh, thorns don't poke you goggles so when you bend over to grab the fruit it doesn't poke your eyes and a hat of course to shield you from the sun so like the white powder on the bottom of the leaves come up as you brush against it the heat of the sun the dust I've seen grown men faint right next to me in the row as we're picking pineapple.
0: Oh my gosh, okay. This is a really, really fascinating discussion today. We're talking now with Dr. Gary Okido, visiting professor of American Studies at Yale University. He's giving us the history of the pineapple, imperial fruit, fruit of empire. We'll be right back. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects both artists and buyers. After more than 30 years, the U.S. Department of Interior is updating the law. Proposals include provisions to include Native Hawaiian artists, and some tribes want to limit protections to only federally recognized tribes. We'll get details on the next Native America Calling.
7: OCO. You look after everyone else. Look after yourself, too. Check out these health care resources for women and at all stages of life. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash women's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
0: Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're talking with experts on the indigenous histories of pineapple and sugar production. If you have a comment or question about today's conversation, if you'd like to learn more about how pineapples were harvested traditionally or more about the history of the fruit, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99NATIVE. Call us now. Our next guest, again, is speaking with us from Acuasasne, New York, Jose Barrero, uh, scholar emeritus from the Smithsonian Institute. And, Jose, uh, we're going to pivot here and and now talk about the island of Cuba, which relied heavily on the production of sugar for many years. Please tell us, what does the sugar industry look like in Cuba today?
3: Uh, Today, uh, to start there, it's it's, uh, much diminished um over time uh, probably to about uh, 15 20 percent of what it was uh, 50 years ago um uh, a lot of the land has gone follow a lot of it's been um, distributed to uh, small farmers and folks coming back to the land in recent years um, there's um, an occasional uh, food shortage, and sometimes even severe food shortage on the island these days, and uh, people are paying much more attention to uh, cropping their own food. Uh, and in this, uh, going back uh, often or just continuing, the, uh, the cropping of uh, the Taino indigenous crops uh, such as beans and maize and uh, tubers, yuca, malanga, poniato and others are very hardy, hardy foods. So it's interesting that after centuries of uh, the kind of agriculture that Gary was describing, which I I, I see as the uh, the introduction of mono monoculture in so many areas. Um, the folks are coming back to the canuco agriculture, the interplanting local crops. That is, uh, as our cacique in, in Cuba, uh, Panchito Ramirez, he says, uh, it's our, it's our store in the forest. is the conuco. Always, there's always something to eat from it. Uh, and uh, uh, so, in in Cuba, wasn't pineapple was uh, there was endemic to Cuba? We have a word, uh, yayama. Describes the, the Cuban pineapple, and it, in in part of Cuba, it, it did go into a monocropping uh, situation. But uh, the um, uh, the sugar industry did spread uh, significantly and, and caused its own its own issues over time.
0: Right, and tell us more about the the Cuban sugar industry. I mean. How did that play out in in the role of colonialism and imperialism and and just some of these other issues that we're exploring today with regard to indigenous populations and and these different fruits and, of course, the sugar?
3: Well, it it comes in with the uh, so-called discovery. Uh, It it comes into the Caribbean very likely, uh, as far as we can tell, in Columbus's second voyage where he ends up in uh, uh, in uh, settling uh, his colony in, in uh, uh, what was then Quisqueya, still is, and, and now is uh, uh, divided by Haiti and Dominican Republic, uh, later known by the Spanish as Española. But in any case, that's where they settled and began to propagate uh, the sugarcane cuttings that they brought. Uh, by the time uh, our own conquistador comes to Cuba, Diego Velazquez, he brings it with him as well. So from very, very early on, I mean, Sugar comes in with the conquest, with the conqueror, with the first one, the conquistador, uh, and um, begins to be propagated, particularly in the plains areas, um, and thus... Uh, the deforestation, beautiful uh, FOREST that went from one coast to another, and the island of Cuba, which is Cuba is not a small island. It's uh, about the size of Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, it's a large landmass for for an island in the Caribbean. But it has mountain areas and and plains areas, and in the plains, sugar plantations uh, begin to to uh, to grow. Uh, initially, the sugar as everything else was was uh, worked by the uh, virtual enslavement of, of Taíno people uh, uh, in in what was called the the institution of the encomienda, where they were given over to a particular Spanish uh, conquistador or high class member and worked uh, in that person's uh, favor uh, as 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 he wished. Uh, Uh So uh, so there was uh, some of that going on. Uh, The Native people survived by escaping deep into the mountains and by blending in with the Spanish initially and later intermarriage with African population coming in uh, enslaved. Uh, There there was... uh, uh, the survival was, again, in the mountains where it's not propitious for a lot of sugarcane. But in the plains area, uh, the sugarcane grew to the point where edicts were passed in Spain to clear the land freely, that uh, sugar producers had that chance. And, and, and by the mid-1850s, uh, Cuba was producing uh, uh, most of the sugar in the world uh, about a third of the world's sugar by mid-19th okay. century so uh it okay. was a large cropping. yes
0: okay so and and just to to clarify jose so the europeans had sugar they had sugar but what was it about cuba that made it such a a good environment for them to grow sugar to the extent that they were able to do so
3: uh the quality of the soil and again the large Plains areas and the climate, uh, and uh, that that went on through the 20th century. It was really part of the fight between Cuba uh, uh, leaving the U.S. orbit and uh, entering the uh, Soviet orbit at the time. You know, and in, in the, in the geopolitics of the Caribbean uh, it played a role throughout that the the. The, what i would point out the most uh, as the most imperial part of this whole agricultural experience with these large crops for export is the destruction of the indigenous agricultural base which is the basis of self-reliance and of a true indigeneity i mean of a true um, uh, sovereignty i would say uh, in the sense that if you feed yourself you you have a much better chance of being independent in the world. Right, right. This this has been true of every native village. uh, Okay, because I
0: want to ask, I mean, so they came in and they just, you know, took over all these plains and and set up these huge, huge sugar plantations, but at at the expense of what other indigenous crops, right? Because I would imagine that there were indigenous crops that now there was no space to grow them.
3: Well, yes, and again, it's the crops... And it's the cropping method itself, the local produced foods that you could self-rely on, uh, which is still a value in much of the native world, even even in very industrialized areas of the world. In the native conception, the ability to produce your own, your own foods is still part of everything. You know, it's part of the right. spiritual and everything. And so the monocropping is a method in itself that comes from Europe, that comes with the empire, uh, to put in crops not for local consumption. The earth is very rich. If for local consumption, everybody could eat and produce all kinds of food. But for mm-hmm. monocrop for export, which sugar was a, a particularly uh, useful crop because everybody wanted to sweeten. Their, their, their food throughout Europe at the time and and, and, and through, through the 19th, uh, 20th century uh, and, and, and to today, but now it's more diverse. So it took over Cuba. It, it became the deforestation of the whole island. Like you said, uh, the, the not just so much the loss of crops, because people kept their crops. Lots of people plant still. And keep their seeds and keep their crops. There's some loss, obviously, but but it's still pretty strong. And that's how, that's how people are feeding themselves today from their family knowledge uh, of okay. that. And 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 it's uh, it's it's a boon, you know. It's a it's a real it's a real good thing to have.
0: Okay. And now click ahead here to to 2023 and and tell us more about what the sugar industry looks like today. Um, How robust is it? Uh, Is monocropping still uh, the way it's done or has it changed?
3: No, it's the way it's done in terms of the industrial cropping of it in in Cuba. Uh, uh, It's also used unusual for a small farmer that has a subsistence, a good subsistence farm, uh, a garden, uh, to have a little patch of sugar cane in order to make their own sugar in the home and sugar water mm-hmm. for cough, what have you. So it's for self-sufficiency use. Now, the, the larger industry uh, is still there. it is still exports uh, its amount of sugar every year. Start, the the big sugarcane cutting starts around november it's called the safra uh but it's it's uh it's tough work as as scary was describing pineapple cropping uh cutting sugarcane by machete is about the only best way of cutting it because it cuts it cuts close to the ground but but working a sugarcane field there's also a dust that comes off that's uh uh, very uh, itchy and bothersome to the skin, and uh, working in machete all day can be a dangerous proposition at times. And and it's hard work. It's just uh, back bending, hard hard work. Uh, and it and, like and uh, it. Yeah. temporal, you know. So people don't work all year. They work a part of the year, then they're laid off, and uh, and that's true. Less so today because it's more collectively organized. But uh, at the same time. Uh, Inefficiency uh, has gotten the best of uh, the Cuban sugar industry in the last few years. I I, I hate to report. Okay. If if we're going to talk about the industry itself, it's not not in in the best of shape.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Jose, thank you so much. Uh, I want to go ahead and and go to our third guest now and talk a little bit more uh, about sugar um, from the Hawaiian perspective. And, again, Dr. Sidney... Iokea, holding a Ph.D. in political science. And uh, Sydney, again, thank you for joining us. And and I understand sugar is not cultivated anymore in Hawaii. Why is that?
6: Uh, Yes. Aloha, Sean. Thank you, um, and to Jose and Gary. Thank you for really setting a good foundation to talk about sugar in Hawaii alongside. I picked up on the monocropping. So from Jose's talk, um, so why isn't sugar mass-produced in Hawaii? I think it goes along a little bit with the monocropping. And so first we had sandalwood, then whaling, then sugar, and then today, of course, tourism. And, I mean, it's a pretty deep history as far as sugar's impact in Hawaii and the mixture with our Hawaiian government – during the Hawaiian kingdom and after the occupation or the, and the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. So it's, it's like a, it's a large story. Um, So just, if I could back up a little bit to just sort of walk us through the impact of sugar in Hawaii, it's really around uh, 1825 is the first plantation on Oahu. But the first one to actually survive was on Kauai in 1835, um, and the islands have different temperatures, different vi or rivers uh, throw, uh, flowing through the landscapes, different um, topography, basically. So, how they were able to enact mass sugar in Hawaii is through diversion of the of the rivers. And um, when I say they, it's, we have what's known as the Big Five corporations that are the sugar plantation owners, but they also were able to uh, mass produce sugar and also be in Hawaiian Kingdom government. A lot of them are former missionaries or sons and grandsons of missionaries. And the Calvinist missionaries came here in, in 1820. They then... Um, intertwine themselves with Hawaiian kingdom government, with Ke, Ke, Ole, Kamehameha III, and 1843 were recognized as a sovereign nation under the anglo franco Proclamation. Um, but, and then just after that, they're able to enact the mehele, which divides the landscape. So as Gary was talking about, you know, the land here is very contested. Uh, and they were able to buy up large tracts of land on all the islands, and they became, became what's known as the Big Five. And then, of course, 1893—that's a whole other—that's <laughs> a whole other thing. But anyway, they mm-hmm. entrenched themselves within the government. Um, so when we're talking about sugar in Hawaii, it's actually a production of the Hawaiian Kingdom government and Kalakaua later becomes uh, the first head of state to circumnavigate the globe looking for sugar plantation laborers. And so we almost in essence become an imperial power um, within the Pacific as well. So he sends out um, between 1874 and 1891, he sends out uh, uh, recruiters to the Pacific, uh, notably the Gilbert Islands, to recruit other Pacific Islanders, or they call the South Sea Islanders, back to Hawaii, there's around 29 or 30 voyages um, in those migrations. And uh, so when you asked before about was there slave labor, there's no evidence of slave labor in Hawaii, but there were, was what's known as blackbirding, and one of the captains associated with um, <clears throat> the recruits was known as a black in Australia, which is slave labor of Kanaka for Australians. So we have this massive uh, immigration push in Hawaii after 1850, which is when the Masters and Servants Act was passed. And the law brought over 115,000 laborers to Hawaii um, from 1850 to up until around 1900. So I was really thrilled to get your call to talk because I just did a a chapter about the migrations of the Gilbertese to Hawaii.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Sydney, thank you again for joining us. We do have to take a short break, but we're going to talk with you more uh, about this history of sugar there in Hawaii right after this break. Anybody with a question, give us a call. 1-800-99-NATIVE.
4: This Mother's Day, you can give all the mothers in your life truly unique gifts from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk, Inc. company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk, Inc. supports this show. Depression touches nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers as a counselor with culturally relevant training. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling, Still lots of time to join our conversation about the history of sugar and pineapples. The number to call is 1-800-996-2848. So if you're listening to the show right now and any of this information is moving you, is making you just question now or want to learn more about this history of sugar and pineapples on the island of Cuba, on the island of Hawaii, give us a call if it's inspired you to ask more questions, to want to learn more about what's been referred to as the fruit of empire. Our phone lines are open right now, 1-800-996-2848. On the line now in Oahu is Dr. Sidney Iokea, a PhD in political science with an emphasis in Hawaii politics. And Sydney, earlier you mentioned that uh, there's no evidence that there was slave labor with regard to the sugar cane there in Hawaii, but you did mention blackbirding and that history. And Can you explain a little bit more about how blackbirding was different than what we would think of as as slave labor, and, and how exactly were these people, these people from the Gilbert Islands who were recruited, uh, a number of voyages, how were they compensated for their labor in the sugar fields?
6: Sure. Uh, so blackbirding, and I only came across the term when I was looking up the... Some, you know, doing some research on the topic in our really in the newspapers from the 1800s, and um, they were aware of blackbirding in the Pacific because a lot of blackbirders or the ones that had been captured by the recruiters on their ships would flee to the Pacific if their if uh, flee to Honolulu, sorry, if their ship stopped here. So they they were aware that that practice was happening. Uh, because Hawaii is an open port at this time, and ships are coming and going, and treaties are, you know, dictating rules of procedure when you enter Honolulu Harbor. Um, so, like I mentioned, one of the captains uh, was a known blackbirder and he also recruited for the private recruiters. So at first, sugar was the what. Well, it was part of the Hawaiian Kingdom legislature. They they allocated money for the recruitment of plantation laborers for contract labor, um, but after the initial years, it, private recruiters were allowed to go into the Pacific specifically and recruit. But they still had to abide by the Bureau of Board of Immigration for the Kingdom. And so, um, they so this one uh, captain, he was. There was some Malay, uh, on one of the islands, and um, they heard about it in Honolulu, so he had to go before the board, and he was reprimanded um, in that instance. And also, I looked specifically at a uh, pioneer mill on Maui, and there was 86 or 90, sorry, 90 laborers in around 1880 that took. Uh, a court case out against their uh, against Pioneer mill and so they came to Maui and they didn't know what their contracts said or and they didn't give um, permission for the contracts. So we okay. have these instances, yeah, and so they refused, so they did a strike um, and they refused to work. So we have instances where um, we have rebellion on the plantations. And there, in that 1850 law of masters and servants, uh, it bound the sugar plantation laborer to their plantation, and so just the title of that that law, you, many will say, okay, masters and servants, right? Um, but yeah, it bound yeah. the contract laborers to their to their plantation, and it made it illegal for them to flee. But when I was doing my research, I saw between 11 to around 30 percent of. Um, Every year within a 10 year span in the 1800s, like around 1870 to 1880, where they did run from their plantations, they were either brought back, they finished out okay. their contracts. Um, with the Gilbertese right. Islanders, they had three year contracts and they were guaranteed a uh, voyage back, and that never happened. So then the whole thing okay. was how did they get back to their islands? Yeah.
0: Well, Sydney, this sounds uh, an awful lot like slavery to me. Uh... I don't know just the way you're describing it bound to the plantation and uh, not being able to leave and things like that so let's go ahead and click ahead now and and let's look at uh, the united states annexation of the island of hawaii and i mean how closely can we look at, at the history of sugar and pineapples and these companies like the dole fruit company and others that came in i mean how big a role Did that industry, those industries play in the annexation of Hawaii by the United States?
6: So there is no annex, there is no treaty of annexation. So uh, international law relies on treaties during this time and today, and there's no treaty of annexation. So we really don't anymore, like at least in the classrooms that I'm in, say annexation straight up is either forced annexation, illegal annexation. Um that occurred in 1898 with the um, Newlands resolution that took Hawaii. So you can't take another state, you can't like absorb another state, which the US did in 1898 and then passed the Organic Act in 1900 to say, okay, now we own it. But basically sugar with the reciprocity treaty played a huge role in the US interest in Hawaii, because of that trade with sugar between the uh, Hawaii and the u s, um, which was vibrant for lack of a better word, with the big five corporations trading. Um, and then it, around that time, so sorry to go a little bit, you know, I mean, it's a big, it's a big narrative, but there's stand sure, that sure. constitution where that they force uh, King Kalakaua to allow the pa- second passage of the Reciprocity Treaty to allow the U.S. to take over Pearl Harbor, to allow for, um, uh, what is it called, when you don't have to pay fees on the sugar. So U.S. became really interested in Hawaiian sugar, especially after the, after and during, sorry, during and after the Civil War when the South stopped producing sugar for the North. So they oh, wanted... Okay. Uh, Hawai'i sugar, tariff-free, that's the word. So the uh, Bayonet Constitution forced the king, Kalakaua, to do that and also cede a portion of Hawaiian sovereignty or Hawaiian sovereign territory, Pearl Harbor, to the United States. Um, When the queen came in in 1892, she wanted to write a new constitution, and that's why they overthrew her. In 1893, she, so not only did it give like free access of Hawaiian sugar to the U.S., there were other things in that in that constitution that the king, her brother, was forced to sign. So when she came in in 1893, the sh- mostly uh, well, it's the group of they call them the Committee of Safety, and they come from sugar plant, you know, the Big Five sugar plantation um, descendants, which were missionary descendants and um, overthrew the queen and formed their own republic of hawaii dole the cousin like uh gary was talking about um took over as a president of the republic of hawaii so they self-named themselves and then they sought sought annexation with the u.s which never passed two treaties with the u.s never passed because i mean a whole bunch of things happened within that time where cleveland who was the u.s president had known the queen um, because she had gone through Washington on her trip to uh, England. Um, so he, he was a supporter after the illegal overthrow. So there's all these things that occur. Um, but like Gary mentioned, the cousin then became the first governor of the, of the territory of Hawaii after the 1898 um, clause that, that okay. joined Hawaii to the U.S. Does that make sense? It's a little bit, you know, out there. But in answer to your question, like, it played a huge role. So the industries themselves, that monoculture, the the attractiveness of Hawaii as not only for the sugar, but as a military um, pit stop in the Pacific for the U.S., all these things. Um, it didn't negate our treaties with the U.S. that we held prior, like treaties of friendship, but it super. And maybe in their minds, it superseded that, so that all these acts could occur that were not legal, and that's why people are still fighting today.
0: Yes, and, you know, this is really helpful, and uh, I really appreciate how you just drew that narrative and, and brought us all the way up to, uh, you know, the late 1800s and and uh, the reign of... Queen Lani so thank you it's really really helpful Sydney let's go ahead and take a phone call now we have Martha who is listening on KUNM in Albuquerque New Mexico hello Martha hello hi Martha what's on your mind
7: oh well I've been listening to this and a wonderful program the background of sugar and uh, it uh, <clears throat> took me to a book on my own shelf uh, that has to do with, the, with sugar and how um, people in general, almost everywhere, anyone that tried sugar, they wanted it. And there's a marvelous book that ties in with this program today, not particularly Hawaii, but here in the U.S., and it is called Hobos, Hoboes, H-O-B-O-E-S. Hobos by Mark Wyman, W-Y-M-A-N. The subtitle is Stiffs, Fruit Tramps, and the Harvesting of the West. And it has everything to do with the, with the USA. And there's some great maps uh, at the beginning of it on the New West, the Great Plains, the Southwest, Pacific Northwest texas california on and on and they all are workers when there was no work they rode any uh, they uh thumbed a ride or stole a ride on railroads and got into any of these states that were uh raising sugar beets and it was called stoop labor so it started out with men but anglo-men were too tall and so it went to women as workers and then children and then uh then uh those groups that are even shorter like mexicanos or japanese along the uh west california coast going up to canada uh that was where all these workers from the midwest were trying to get there uh once the work played
0: out here but it was all had
7: to do with sugar beets
0: yeah yeah no this is really helpful appreciate you uh sharing that book recommendation and and stooped labor that's really interesting so height uh, definitely had had a a role to play there let's go ahead and pivot back now to our our first guest gary and uh, gary it's interesting how our caller martha mentions that uh Throughout history, I mean, everyone who tried sugar, uh, they wanted it, right? They wanted it, and they wanted more of it. So uh, please kind of help us out here as we draw down the show. We're going to wrap up here in the next few minutes. And what else do people really need to understand uh, about sugar and and the pineapples and these industries there in Hawaii and Cuba and other parts of uh, the world where Indigenous people are impacted?
5: Thank you, Sean. Martha's comments. Uh, sparked two things. One, stoop labor. Stoop labor was a racist term deployed to, for cheap labor or people who bent over and did the work. It had nothing to do with their height. It, every, uh, no matter how tall you are, it is still very difficult to bend over or to work from your knees. Um, what it is, stoop labor meant cheap labor. So they moved from men to women and children to pay them less to be able to exploit them more. That's number one. Number two okay. is that not everybody, meaning Europeans, love sugar or pineapples. They had to be taught to like that, they had to be taught to enjoy sugar. Um, they use honey and other kinds of sweeteners before. And so the business of sugar and pineapple was to teach consumers how to use this. Um, so, they would have recipe books and so forth, how to make cakes with sugar, pineapple, and so forth. And once the sweetener became um, part of their diets, it became addictive. It became addictive. They were pushing dope on people.
0: Really really impactful there gary thank you for for that background so that's that's fascinating so all we think of with the the sugar i mean sweets and pastries and cookies and candies all this stuff i I mean in some way you can trace back to these early imperialistic policies that's is that what you're saying
5: exactly i want to hear jose and uh sydney talk about that because like the marketing of these products is just as important as the production of them.
0: Okay, let's go ahead and, and let Jose chime in because Jose, we're we're gonna have to wrap up in about a minute. I'm gonna give you the last word of the show here today, and please add to our conversation now with, with some of these really, really uh, just profound uh, remarks that, that Gary makes with regards to the history of the sugar industry and how it's addictive and, and, and how it's marketed.
3: All of these products are highly marketed, you know, from from sugar to tobacco to uh, oil itself uh, and, and all its byproducts. Uh, the the, uh, the industries are very good at that and creating need where there wasn't any, and so forth. Sugar, uh, I tend to humanize it a little bit more. Uh, I know the tradition of sugar. At uh, gatherings, community gatherings, ceremonies, birthdays, uh, it's kept a, it's, it's kept alive by some just wonderful family chefs who adapt it and work with it and produce all kinds of wonderfully tasting unhealthy cakes uh, that we all consume. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, it, it, there, there is a piece of it It sure grows on you as a as a habit forming uh, element sugar and 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 pineapple is wonderful because it is sweet and uh-huh. uh, every that we love uh, we love because they are sweet and it's all the same sugar uh honey or not uh but we we uh we learned we learned that all these things can be overdone and things that begin well end up uh being overused like tobacco which has sure a, a sure Jose for... I'm, I'm
0: sorry we are going to have to wrap up we're out of time but I want to thank you as well as Gary and Sydney for a wonderful really insightful conversation on the history of sugars and pineapple there in the Hawaiian and Cuban islands join us again tomorrow as we take a look at recent proposed revisions to the Indian Arts and Crafts Act hope you'll tune in then
4: Support from the Self-Governance, Communication, and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort in Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 26th to the 29th. Learn how tribes are using self-governance for the delivery of programs and services for their citizens and communities, and how this authority improves the health and well-being of tribal communities. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Education Sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an Educator Day, a Student Day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA Awards Ceremony. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org who support this show.